It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Stuart Vonney. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. Brittany Griner's trial resumes today, but the star American basketball player has no shot in this court in Russia. Whatever the script is, it's been written. And for her, it's just continued detention. We're not even through midterms, and yet both sides of the political aisle are talking about 2024. As Republicans wait to see if President Trump runs again, Democrats wonder if President Biden will run again. His administration insists he will, but will someone challenge him from within the party? We know the Democrats have questions about him. We know the overall electorate doesn't think he's competent. And I'm Rebecca Coughlin. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It's not the court Brittany Griner is used to. The American basketball star's trial resumes today in Russia on drug charges that could net her 10 years in prison. Griner plays there during the WNBA offseason, but in February, she was detained at a Moscow airport accused of carrying vape cartridges with cannabis oil. From jail, she wrote a letter to President Biden asking him not to forget about her, terrified she'll be in Russia forever. On Tuesday, her wife Sherelle Griner told CBS This Morning, They are not moving, they are not doing anything, and so... Um, My wife is struggling, and and we have to help her. Yesterday, President Biden called Sherelle. To make sure she knows that we are doing everything we can to get Brittany home as quickly as possible. And the president read her the letter he's sending back to Brittany. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre adds, The U.S. government continues to work aggressively uh, using every available means uh, to bring her home along with other wrongfully detained Americans. In April, Trevor Reed was set free from Russia in a prisoner swap. The former U.S. Marine had been there since 2019 when he was arrested for intoxication. The Russians have absolutely no compunction about, about using our citizens you know, as leverage to get what they want. Dan Hoffman is a retired CIA senior clandestine services officer, now a Fox News contributor. There are Russians who have committed crimes, serious crimes, and been arrested for those crimes. And and the Russians feel like the only way to get them out is to do some sort of a swap. And they feel that, uh, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why they they arrest U.S. citizens in country and then put the pressure on us to to make a deal. And, And that really kind of twists, you know, the rule of law, which doesn't exist in Russia. Obviously, it does in the United States, but the, but the Russians don't don't respect the rule of law, and this is their way to get around it. We, none, you've been there. You've lived there. You, you've worked there. You know Russia inside and out. What is a courtroom like for her when she walks in? What What is she experiencing? There's no assumption of innocence until proven guilty like there is here in the United States we have a real legal system here with, with a judge and a jury and, and lawyers. It's one of the foundations of our democracy, and it's what Vladimir Putin has tried to, to target pretty ruthlessly, that in our free press. And so in the case of Russia, whatever the script is, it's been written. And for her, it's just continued detention. 
it's tragic for, for, the, for our, our citizens uh, in harm's way like this. They are mistreated and the, there's sporadic access so that they're not given the kind of uh, nourishment that they need. And they're certainly not given access to, to lawyers and, and to the U.S. Embassy, which is seeking to, to verify the, the conditions uh, meet at least basic standards. It's, it's, uh, and the Russians do all this knowing that, that it just gives them greater leverage to get what they want in return. Right, right. So you say the script's already written. Does she have a, a, an attorney, quote unquote, next to her, supposedly, that's her defense? So she'll get a lawyer. But the lawyer is going to be doing the bidding of Russia's security services and has no other choice. If the lawyer wants to uh, live to practice another day, that's that's what he's got to do. Okay, so she's most likely going to be convicted of this drug charge and could get up to 10 years in prison. There, We've all seen the stories lately in the last uh, weeks that very few cases ever lead to acquittal. And even if it does lead to acquittal in Russia, those acquittals can be overturned. So she's pretty much set to be convicted, right? Yeah. And, and one of the things that Russia likes to do is they like to mirror image. So listeners may recall that uh, the Biden administration engineered a prisoner exchange where we were able to uh, secure the release of uh, U.S. Marine Trevor Reed. But in return, uh, the U.S. had to refree Konstantin Gerashenko, who was a, a Russian pilot serving a 20-year federal prison sentence for conspiracy to smuggle cocaine into the United States. Now, that's real. You know, I have no doubt that whatever was discovered on uh, Brittany Griner's person was was planted there. I'm sure that it was. Um, but in the case of, of you know, this Russian Yaroshenko, for example, who's been released and sent back to Russia. I mean, that was a real case of of drug smuggling in mm-hmm. the United States. And so the Russians will want to try to do their version of the whataboutism and, and complain that uh, this stuff just happens. And, and they're releasing a, a, a somebody who was convicted of smuggling drugs, just like we are. Which okay. is, nothing could be farther from the truth. There was, there's been talk that maybe Russia's trying to engineer a prisoner swap for a guy named Victor Boot, who was an arms dealer convicted here. There was a movie Merchant of Death made about him. Is that possible in your view, that they would try to get him out? He was arrested in Thailand way back in 2008. So the Russians have been, have been seeking his release for a long time. He was convicted by a jury in a Manhattan federal court of conspiracy to kill U.S. citizens and sentenced to 25 years in prison. So he's got quite a few years left, and the Russians would like to get him back. So, you know, from, from the U.S. perspective, that's a tricky exchange to make for sure, but you can bet that Brittany Griner's family uh, is would be pushing for just this sort of, you know, exchange. The United States has, has historically been induced to make these sorts of um, Faustian bargains with the Soviets, or in this case, uh, the KGB operative in the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin. All right. This letter that that Brittany Griner hand wrote, President Biden read it the other day. She's pleading for him. Don't forget about me. I could be in Russia here forever. My question is, how does that even get out? Do they ask her, you think, hey, write a letter to your president? She's in prison and uh, maybe if she wants to get her next meal. She's going to do what they tell her to do. So she's going to say, would you like to get out of jail? And Sure, she'd say yes. And they're going to say to her, well, uh, then you need to write a letter asking for your release and direct it to President Biden. I think that's what they would do with her. And they would use um, some psychological manipulation. Remember, she's been in jail for some time and uh, has to be feeling quite alone and concerned about her future. And 
I think that, uh, you know, the Russians are, are quite known to be experts at applying maximum uh, psychological pressure to get what they want. And what they want is an exchange. And so that's why they would use this sort of a letter to pull at the heartstrings of Americans who are going to learn about it, especially Britney's family, uh, who are going to press their elected representatives, who in turn to press the Biden administration to do something about this. Paul Whelan is another American behind bars in Russia and has been since 2018. Now, back when Trevor Reed was set free, Whelan said in a statement, why was I left behind? The world knows this charge was fabricated. Then he asked, why hasn't more been done to secure his release? You know, the Russians made a decision that they would let Trevor Reed out first. And by doing so, increase the pressure on the U.S. government to do something for Paul Whelan, who, after all, has been he's, he was arrested, as you said, in December 2018, uh, wrongly accused of spying. Uh, sentenced to 16 years in prison. Of course, you know, he's at a nasty labor camp and his health is in question. And so, look, this isn't like get in line and you get the last the last one or the first one uh, wrongly in prison gets to get out first. No, this is Vladimir Putin's KGB Russia. And so Putin knows that the pressure would be greater if he holds Paul Whelan even a bit longer. And there's that's the logic. It's twisted. And, and you've got to try to see the world through through Vladimir Putin's KGB eyes on this one. And he knows that that the pressure on the U.S. government to do something about Paul Whelan will reach an even higher, uh, a higher level um, as a result of this. All these negotiations come amid all the tension with Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky said the other day it's not simply an attempt to seize our land and destroy our state institutions or break down our independence. It is a far greater confrontation, the confrontation of outlooks. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Indonesia now for a G20 meeting of foreign ministers. It's the first time he's been in the same room as his Russian counterpart since January, though there are no plans for a one-on-one meeting. I don't think that we're at the stage yet where the United States and Russia can engage in any meaningful negotiations. There's a lot yet to be decided on the battlefield. And right now we're looking at you know, a very destructive war uh, of attrition in, in, in Donbass region of Ukraine. But Russia continues to rain down hell on Ukrainian civilians throughout the country. And I think that uh, there's no indication right now that Vladimir Putin is ready to stop the fight. When would Russia be exhausted? I think that's a question that President Biden is asking his intelligence community. What does the correlation of forces look like? Uh, which, whether Ukraine or Russia, will how they match up in this war of attrition? And what can we do to more to help Ukraine and 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 change the correlation of forces in, in, into Ukraine's favor. We're doing a lot. We're giving Ukraine a lot of military assistance. Much more than and any other country, way more than any other country. As we should. You know, we've always been the arsenal for democracy. And I can tell you that if Ukraine loses this war, we're going to be in much worse shape. And that, yes, we're spending some money right now, but but everybody's losing. There's a lot of dead Ukrainians. There's millions of internally displaced people and refugees. And the Russians have reportedly lost over 30,000 of their soldiers. Those are significant losses. And what the Biden administration needs to emphasize publicly more than they have so far is that the Russian military is the power on its own to end Putin's destructive war. 
And we need to hold out that there is the potential for a renewed relationship with the West, for Russia, with all the benefits to the Russian people that you can imagine commercially that Putin has has um, deliberately broken. But only after the Kremlin withdraws its forces and agrees to a peace settlement, which respects Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, we've got to show that we've got the staying power to, to enable Ukraine to win this, to win the fight. And, you know, I, I, I would not make the I would say that, that, that neither Russia nor Ukraine is arguably winning. That's why the war is carrying on. Look, wars end when one country is defeated, and that's not going to happen in the near term, or when both countries are so exhausted that they come to the peace table and decide to negotiate uh, a settlement. And, and we're not there yet. What will be first, Brittany Griner released or the war ending? Gosh, I don't know. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one to prognosticate. We have things to talk about with the Russians, whether it's you know nuclear arms control uh, or getting our citizens out of harm's way, uh, and and those things can be can be separate and distinct from our support to Ukraine and its in its very righteous war against Russia. So they, they they may not be so interconnected. Dan Hoffman, retired CIA senior clandestine services officer, Fox News contributor. Always good to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Rebecca Koffler with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. Another poll has bad news for the president. A Monmouth survey finds just 36% approve of the job President Biden is doing, 58% disapprove. Still, when broken down by party, nearly three out of four Democrats approve of his job in the White House. The last time more voters approved than disapproved of the president's job performance was in mid-December, when a Reuters-Ipsos poll found more approved than disapproved by two points. Speaking in Cleveland, Ohio Wednesday, the president reminded iron workers that one of the reasons he ran for president was to unify the country. That's been the harder part of it right now. No, I'm serious because we've become so divided. But there's another question some polls have asked. It's a question some White House reporters have asked. Some op-eds have asked it as well. Should President Biden run in 2024? Joe Biden is running for re-election and I will be his ticket mate. Vice President Harris said that to CNN in late June, and White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre recently confirmed he would run again as well. A new Harvard-Harris poll, though, finds 71 percent do not think he should run. 45 percent said he's not a good president. A third said he's too old. If President Biden does not run or is challenged from within the party, Who's on the bench other than Vice President Harris? Some Democrats are floating Hillary Clinton's name again. She told CBS in late June. I can't imagine it. I really can't. I, but what I don't know. Well, but what I can't imagine is staying as active and outspoken as I can. And then, of course, the question on the Republican side is who is on the GOP's bench as we wait to find out if former President Trump runs again. He told a Texas rally in May. Most importantly, in 2024, we are going to take back our beautiful, beautiful, beautiful White House. As Democrats pour money into helping Trump-backed candidates in the primary season, figuring it'll be easier to beat them in the fall, we wait to see how Democrats fare in the midterms. And what happens with inflation? As that Monmouth poll I told you about earlier finds 88% of respondents feel the country is on the wrong track. Well, the most important thing really to note in the poll is the percentage of people 
who feel that their economic life is worse off. Mark Penn is the CEO of Stagwell Incorporated, a former Clinton advisor and co-founder of the Harvard-Harris Poll. You know, that has been rising month after month and is, is I think, well over 60% right now. And that was always the key indicator, you know, ever since President Reagan asked that question, are you better off today than you were X years ago? Well, the answer is people are worse off. They're feeling it. Obviously, inflation is the number one issue. And so it's no surprise the president's lowest ratings are on the economy. They're on inflation. And they think that he, he hasn't solved and perhaps even exacerbated or is responsible for some of the economic problems people are facing. I want to know, and I don't know if you have any data on this necessarily, but if President Biden were in his you know, mid to late 40s, like President Obama was, would we be having these conversations about an incumbent president running again? In other words, is it primarily his age driving the questions that we're seeing in, in polls and op-eds and articles about will he, won't he run again in 2024? Is the age a factor as opposed to the low poll numbers or as opposed to the, you know, how people feel about the economy? Well, not to quote President Reagan too much, but (laughs) he was the one who said, I won't let my opponent's youth and inexperience hold you back. So I think that age is really a factor only because the president is not seen as doing a good job. I think Mm -hmm. that if anyone's seen as doing a good job, age is not a factor. But Given the fact that, you know, he is the most advanced age president we have ever had, and given the fact that immigration, crime, inflation, you know, all of these problems are out of control and that his ratings are are below water, I think age is a secondary factor to performance. Got it. What sort of poll numbers do you think would avoid these 2024 conversations? You know, would the president have to be in like the upper 40s or above 45 percent? And I know that's sort of like technical. But, you know, I ask because former President Trump didn't necessarily poll that well, but we didn't hear a whole lot of questions about like, will he, won't he in 2020? Like we all kind of knew he would run again. Well, but the shocking thing in our poll is the small percentage of people it's only 30% of Democrats who say they would vote in a Democratic presidential primary for Joe Biden. Now, typically, for someone in office who's president, that number is a low of 65%, usually in the 80s. I've never seen a number like that. So Democratic voters are going like, we kind of thought you'd be one term. We, We thought age was a big factor. And given how the performance on all these economic and Afghanistan and these other issues, we don't really think you're the one who should carry the batter in uh, in 2024. And you'll be challenged uh, in a primary for sure. Let's talk about passing the baton then. Who might run? Would it be Vice President Harris? What sort of, I guess, do the polls show us about how Democratic voters feel about her? Or would it be possibly someone else? We're, we're hearing talk again um, from some Democratic strategists about Hillary Clinton, that, that she's the one with the know-how, the knowledge, the name recognition. Where do you foresee this going, either based on polling data or based on just sort of what you read and know being in this business? Well, knowing Hillary as I do, of course she's going to consider it. But her national numbers are even weaker than Trump's. 
And I don't think she wants to be in a situation where she would run for president, win the nomination and lose. So I do think that Harris is the odds on favorite. She's vice president. She's the next in line. Look, I think there are many scenarios under which Biden would leave office somewhat early and she would have an opportunity to show her stuff as president and have all the trappings of the president. That seems so far to have worked for Kathy Hochul in New York, where Andrew Cuomo left the office of governor and someone who otherwise was not really well regarded now, you know, came in such a strong showing in the Democratic primary and is a is a tough candidate to beat in the November election. So well, wait, I have, I, think- I have to interrupt you, though, because Governor Cuomo left under, you know, very specific circumstances regarding accusations made by women. In this case, what you're talking about would be a the president of the United States purposely exiting early and handing the reins over to his vice president. Well, there could be a, you know, a significant investigation of Hunter Biden. I don't think that's going to go particularly well. All of these questions that have been ducked are questions that if the Republicans are able to be as effective as the January 6th committee, and I say if because they were particularly ineffective in the past, you know, would demand get answers to. And I don't think those answers are necessarily going to be great, great answers. So I think there could be a lot of developments here. Presidential politics is a highly unpredictable uh, science. You know, no one predicted Donald Trump. No one predicted Jimmy Carter. Few people predicted Bill Clinton. So I think there were a lot of events that can happen. We know that President Biden is entering the second part of his term, unless there's some miraculous turnaround between now and the midterms, in a weakened fashion. We know the Democrats have questions about him. We know the overall electorate doesn't think he's competent and perhaps too old. And so personally, I think it's unlikely he'll run for a second term at the end of the day. If the president were to pass the baton, how do Democrats handle that or even a primary challenger without starting an intra-party fight or a situation where they air the party's dirty laundry, especially as there's not necessarily agreement on who they want to go with, you know, given the Democrats' current bench? Well, I think it's a little bit the opposite in that contested presidential primaries these days tend to be good for parties, right? I I think ultimately the 20-person primary in the Republican Party that Trump (laughs) won was good for Trump, right? I think Biden was the unexpected winner of the Democratic primary, and that set him up well. I don't think primaries are going to be a bad thing. I think actually they were a show that people can watch, and people like watching political shows these days. Since Democrats are, you know, even funding in some cases, you know, pro-Trump candidates or candidates who are backed by Trump in this primary season, does that mean that Democrats themselves are hoping Trump himself runs in 2024? And do you think he's going to run, given what you've heard? Well, I think Democrats are hoping he runs in 2022 for 2024, that the sooner he announces, which Trump is floating that will make everything about Trump and right. everything about Trump right now when Trump is in the you know low 40s and ratings is kind of very helpful for the for the Democratic Party. So Trump could do a lot of good for Democrats if he makes this about himself now. I don't know, you know, everything signal that Trump gives uh, is that he's going to run again. And what I hear from insiders is they think at the last minute he might not because he really is in a tougher position to win. Part of that will will be what the Democratic lineup is. I'm sure if there's a Biden rematch, 
he will definitely be be all in that race. Hmm. Uh, one thing I'll say, though, is that the public says strongly if it's Trump against Biden, they might vote for a third party candidate. They really want to move forward as opposed to have a limited set of past choices like Biden and Hillary and Trump. I mean, they are looking for a new politics here. And finally, if you're advising Democrats right now, who do you think should run? Not only given the bench that we we see from the Democrats, but given that what you just said, that presidential politics is surprising. Um, does anybody sort of pop into your mind? And I ask that in the context of this week, a political article sort of putting forward a California governor, Gavin Newsom versus Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Like, are, are there some people on the Democrats bench that we're not necessarily talking about as much as we should be? Sure. I, uh, somebody like Newsom could be a good Democratic primary uh, opponent. I mean, he's, you know, comes from a big state. He fended off for a recall uh, election. You know, mm -hmm. I think Amy Klobuchar has always been uh, viewed as a sleeper candidate, but, uh, you know, a potential uh, strong Midwestern support could come out of there. I think a Gilliband, who was talked about for a while, sort of faded, I think, uh, you know, more so uh, in my view. You know, I'm not I, I'm a little less believing that no matter how glib Buttigieg is, that he really doesn't have the experience that would catapult him up into a, a presidential campaign. So, you know, my general advice, of course, for people would be if you could run. Sure. Why not? You should get in. It's a relatively open open contest, and it's a way to kind of move up uh, your recognition and stature. I think the Newsom thing was interesting. I think his stunt against DeSantis was uh, <sighs> one of the better political stunts of the year. It got, got <laughs> attention, you know, he spent $100,000 and got him a lot of attention. Mark Penn, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Thank you very much. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Rebecca Koffler. What's on your mind? The U.S. and the West are amping up security aid to Ukraine with high hopes that they can turn the tide back in its favor and force Russian President Vladimir Putin to halt his brutal assault. But he won't. Here are five reasons why. First, Putin believes that he has forced a tipping point, both on the battlefield and off, after capturing about 20% of Ukraine's territory, establishing full control of Ukraine's industrial heartland, with iron and steel producing factories. Second, Putin believes economic sanctions have backfired on the West, which faces skyrocketing oil and gas prices, as well as food shortages. The unprecedented economic sanctions placed on Russia by the West not only haven't destroyed the Russian economy, they've strengthened it. Russia's oil earnings are booming, and the ruble hit its strongest level in seven years, enabling Putin to continue financing his war machine. Third, Putin senses the war fatigue is starting to take hold in the West, despite the US and European leaders 
public displays of support for Kiev. Four, in three months, Putin will be able to inflict even more pain on the Europeans with his energy attacks while gaining greater ability to distract the West from his rampage across Ukraine. As the temperature drops and Western Europe begins to shiver, support for confronting Russia will also freeze up, he believes. Fifth, finally, the outcome of the conflict in Ukraine is an existential issue for Russia. Putin declared Ukraine as a red line for NATO expansion because, whether justified or not, Russia views the country as a part of its strategic security perimeter. Putin believes that U.S. policy of democratizing what Russia views as its sphere of influence is here to stay, regardless of who occupies the White House. A declassified top-secret strategy report describes long-term bipartisan U.S. policy as seeking to prevent a single hostile power, such as Russia, from dominating the Eurasian landmass and to assist democratic and nationalist movements where possible in the struggle against totalitarian regimes. This report, similar writings by Western think tanks and recent admissions by Biden administration officials of Washington's goal to weaken Russia economically and militarily, justify, in Putin's view, the war in Ukraine. This is Rebecca Koffler, author of Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.